we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, which is the last chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians. And as you're opening to that, uh, the last time we finished up the resurrection chapter, chapter 15, and today we're going to cover this last chapter prior to us starting 2 Corinthians, which is a logical progression after 1 Corinthians. So, without further ado, chapter 16, verse 1. So the Apostle Paul is sending this uh, message to the Corinthians via letter, and he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So the Apostle Paul, this is his farewell address to the Corinthians in his letter, and his first order of business is the collection for the needy saints in Jerusalem. Now, different ideas on how this came to be. We know there was a famine which could have hurt them. We know that at Pentecost, many got saved. I believe it was 3,000 in one day. Uh, so it is quite possible that these new converts stayed in Jerusalem no longer than they normally would, maybe were a part of the church and taxed the resources of the Jerusalem church. And it's all speculation. Regardless, though, the Jews gave the Gentiles a gift, their Messiah. Contrary to popular opinion, if you do your studies and your history, the early church was all Jewish. And then it slowly moved, morphed into becoming a Gentile church. Of course, there's plenty of Jews around the world today that believe, and that's always a blessing. But the Jews gave the Gentiles a gift, their Messiah. And now that the Jewish church was suffering, the Gentiles helped them financially. So you see two concepts here. Number one, material help for spiritual blessings. And we saw this in the Old Testament. A lot of people ask, what does tithe mean? In the Old Testament, the priests would work, um, would serve night and day, serve at the Lord's uh, request, and they would also teach the rest of the tribes of Israel about spiritual matters, right? Uh, so what happens was the rest of the tribes would get together 10% of everything they had, give it to the priests and the Levites so they could only focus on doing spiritual things. So that, that um, material help for spiritual blessings. The second concept is reciprocity. And that's the way it should be. What application can we make with reciprocity? Relationships, right? When I'm able to help you, I help you. When there comes a time where I'm in need, you return the favor and you help me, right? And that's the way it should be. People who love each other want to bless others and give from the goodness of their hearts. Now, that is in contradiction to, we, we read the book of James. There were some who would maybe look at someone who didn't have enough to eat. Maybe they were dressed in rags. They really looked like they were in need. And some in the church that James addresses said, hey, you don't look so good. Be warm and filled. Oh, but not by me. I'm on a budget. I'm on a tight schedule. Well, somebody will help you out. Goodbye. And James said that that was a problem, right? That was a problem. And, you know, we should always pray about ways that we can be a blessing to others, especially this time of year. It's hard for many. I was kind of tested last week. You know, sometimes my own messages ring forth in my head and convict me. I was on a, I was on, on a time schedule, as I always am, and I'm going somewhere, and I see a guy sitting on the curb with a hood on like this, and uh, I passed him up. And then I heard my sermon in my head, pray about you, somebody you could help this time of the year. So, so I pulled into the parking lot, made a loop, went back, 
And I rolled down the window and I said, hey, are you okay? Turns out he was on his phone. He was just trying to keep warm. He said, no, I'm fine, but thanks for asking. And he went back to talking. But the cool thing was that was a test that God gave me. Joe, do you practice what you preach? Are you sensitive to the needs of others? Now, listen, the law enforcement side of me says, ladies, just be careful. You know, be led of the Lord, be led of the Spirit, but, you know, be careful how you deal with people on the street because I wouldn't want to see something happen to you. A few things. Number one, have you ever taken anyone into your home? My wife and I went to see this movie called The Blind Side, and for the most part it was a wholesome movie, except one part was a gang scene where they were kind of fighting, which was, you know, could be rough for children. Uh, but it was a true story about Sean and Leanne Tui. They took in a, a, a 16, 17-year-old uh, guy who had literally the clothes on his back. He was from a broken home. He, you know, he didn't have a good life. His grades were suffering. And they felt led of the Lord, they were Christians, to bring him into their home. They eventually adopted him. And again, it's a true story. Michael Ower, who was the person, the, the kid they took in, eventually went on to play football for the Baltimore Ravens. He got his grades up. People put love and care into him. And they did something with this guy. I tell you, though, my wife and I have taken people in over the years. It will test you. It will test your comfort zones. It'll test your privacy. It will test your inconveniences. But it could be something that the Lord's calling you. Now, I wouldn't take this lightly. Again, you bring someone into your home, you need to pray about it. You don't just go by emotion. Lord, what should I do in this situation? I tell you what, though, the more I get to know this fellowship in front of me, as I look around, many of you have taken people in, and that's amazing. God bless you. The Lord likes that. Two, pray about making a meal or cleaning for someone who can't take care of themselves. It's just a way to bless others. I was blessed by um, my wife and Shari and Raquel, who got together with the teen girls, and uh, had, you know, they baked batches of cookies for the, for the sole purpose of just giving them to a nursing home or somebody who would be blessed by it. And they really were blessed by it. I, I spoke to you, I think, last week or the week before about the outcome of that. But pray about how you can do your share serving the Lord and furthering his kingdom. In Matthew 25, it says something interesting. Jesus says, there's going to be those who are in prison. There's going to be those who don't have enough clothes or hungry or whatever the case may be. And when you bless them, Jesus says, I identify with the needy. He says, if you've done this to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. Wow. So in serving others and blessing others, we're actually blessing the Lord. Interesting concept. The Christian walk is a give and take. Now, that doesn't mean that I give and you take, or vice versa. There are some who will always be giving. And there were some, unfortunately, who will always be takers. They just, whatever they can get, they take, 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 and don't give back. That's dysfunction in the body of Christ. There's reciprocity. And we can look at marriage, right? If one spouse is always taking and doesn't give, marriage is going to suffer. There's going to be problems in that relationship. Ideally, each spouse wants to bless the other one. It's a reciprocity issue. So, Jesus said this. It's very interesting. Two concepts, two dimensions. The first dimension, we're able. Russ and I are able. I bless him. He blesses me. We just want to bless each other. That's our friendship. Now, Jesus said there's another dimension for those who are unable. He said, don't just give to somebody who can repay you back. The Gentiles do that. There's nothing impressive about that. Although it is part of a relationship, he said, when you give... Consider giving to some who can't give back. Maybe they're disabled. Maybe they're poor. 
Maybe they don't have any resources. So there's a second dimension. I'll tell you what, the Bible said it is better to give than to receive. It feels good when you give. It really does. Those of you who have done that, to bless someone else and see them smile, and you know, you can see them, even the, with the nursing home, we went and there was a bunch of elderly women sitting around, and they said, ladies, let's take up a connect collection for the church. And I said, no, we just want to bless you and show you the love of Christ. So that's just awesome to see the look on their faces of joy of, you know, nobody comes to visit us. Wow, you don't even know us and you've came to visit us, right? So it's a really good feeling. Moving on, the Apostle Paul says, regarding the um, collection, he says, I have given orders, you must do, each one of you, and get it done before I come. <laughs> Giving was expected. And Paul never beat around the bush. So many Christians fall in love with the Apostle Paul and his writings over the years. But I guarantee if God brought him back from heaven and put him in any church, he would probably start to, to clear the place out. Oh, we've had enough of Paul. He's insulted us. Put him back in the history books. <laughs> he would cramp the lifestyle of so many with his teaching. He would. Godly teaching. You see, there was no time to dawdle or fool around in the first century. Furthering God's kingdom and building the church is serious business. But I submit to you, is it any different today in modern America? Are we supposed to sit back and rest on our laurels as believers in America? The things of God often come after success, education, entertainment. Americans worship entertainment, a social life, and sports schedules. Is God's word and his timeless agenda any less important in the year 2009 in the United States of America? I would argue the reverse. I think Satan has lulled believers into a false sense of security because I believe, I'm not going to set dates or times, that's for false teachers to do. I believe we are living in the time, in the generation where very exciting things are happening. Pretty much all the scriptures and prophecies that need to be fulfilled before the Lord's coming back have been fulfilled. There are countries that have the ability to destroy the face of the planet with the, with, uh, it's just the nuclear energy, the nuclear weapons. Uh, I just believe that we are living in exciting times. And we can, let the, we can let Satan lull us into a false sense of security, and then the Lord could come tonight. And many Christians will be standing before the Lord and go, oh my God, I didn't know this was going to happen. Can I go back and finish, you know, and, and do something as a, as a believer? So, listen, it was important 2,000 years ago. I believe it's more important today for believers to be involved working and furthering God's kingdom. Verse 5, he says, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, but it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus and Pentecost, for a great and effective door has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Fifteen chapters of terse correction, and in the sixteenth chapter, the Apostle Paul has the nerve to say, I'm coming, and I'm eager to see you. <laughs> Boy, I tell you what, he was going to winter with them. There were some, some issues in the Corinthian church. There was factions that didn't like Paul. I could imagine him going there, and they probably wouldn't need to stoke up the fireplace to keep warm because there was going to be a lot of heat in between believers or amongst the believers. But he said he was coming. He fully expected to go into that church and to be greeted as a brother in Christ or an apostle with no malice. Any tension that would have come 
from their meetings certainly would have to do with the Apostle Paul disciplining them through his letters. It may have affected their pride. We're going to see a lot of this in 2 Corinthians, how things worked out. But that's a shame because it's another example of the world entering the church. A society does well. A society prospers. The Corinthians were very prosperous. And what it has, it has an effect on each individual that they become haughty and lifted up with pride. Well, how can you speak to me like that? You can't, I'm a Corinthian. We got it going on here. How dare you speak to me like that? Is it any different today? Americans get offended. Proverbs chapter 9 says it's the wise man who submits himself to correction and becomes even wiser. But it's the fool who scoffs. Nope, nope, I don't want to hear it. I know everything. There's nothing you can tell me. That's the fool. In the church then, and even in the church today, people get offended and they flee. It shows a lack of maturity. Discipline and correction equals love. A pastor or any leader of a fellowship who ignores the problem in his church or is unconcerned is not loving his flock. When I was a new believer, and you know, even today, I'm not immune from correction or discipline, right? I just remember, though, my mentors in, their, in the formative years of my Christian walk. I allowed them to correct me, you know? Because they put time, energy, and consistency into my life. It showed me that they loved me, right? If somebody's willing to put that time and care about you, you know what? There's times we're going to have to open ourselves up to correction. And then there were those who were passing through Corinth who would stir people up against Paul. Um, we have a term today called pot stirs, right? You see that person at work or that person at church or that person in your family that's just always willing to come in and stir up a little trouble. It's like when you were a kid, you would play ring and run, ring the doorbell, and then take off, right? That's what they do. They stir the pot, and then they take off. They're not consistent. They're flighty, right? There's no substance to them. There were many who were used as emissaries of Satan, and the Corinthians, a lot of them were dumb enough to take the bait. And I have to ask myself, seriously, we should stop and ask ourselves this question for each individual person. I don't know what your situation is. Who's always consistent in my life? All of us will have some name or some face of a person that pops up into our mind. Who is always consistent in my life? Who's always available? Even if I don't speak to them every day, I know they're there for me if I need them. Who is fly-by-night or uncommitted? And this helps in the decision-making process. When it comes to listening to advice, correction, and discipline, put the time in, right? Listen, I love when people come up after service and maybe I, I made a mistake or I said something or I misquoted a scripture and they come up and correct me. I like that. I want to be on my toes. I want to be sharp. I don't want to give out false information. This, all this stuff goes out on the website and CDs and, you know, it, I want to make sure I'm right. However, I'm more prone or more apt to listen to someone who has gone through the book with us and says, you know, I don't agree with that concept. Hey, brother, let's talk about it. You know, maybe we'll come to a consensus, maybe we won't. Versus the person that maybe out of uh, 17 or 18 or 20 services is there for two or three services and just has to complain about something. Well, you're not there. Listen to all the messages and then let's talk about the message, right? So we allow ourselves to be opened up to this correction, advice, and, and discipline for those who are a part of our lives, who are available, who put the time and consistency and energy into our lives. And verse 7 the Apostle Paul and many godly men and women even today say, yes, I'm going to do that if the Lord permits, barring a, God forbid, car accident or some type of accident or a crisis in someone's life. Hey, I'll be there in a month. You can count me in. But he says, if the Lord permits. 
And that's the way we should live our lives. Proverbs 16.9, I love it. It says, a man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. I have plans. We all, there's nothing wrong with planning. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that the wise man sees danger and reacts to it, responds to it, and the foolish man does nothing, duh, and he's punished for it. So we should be planning, but remember, the Lord directs our steps. He's the one, ultimately, that's going to decide whether we can keep that engagement or not, right? And verse 9, he says, a great and effective door is opened, and in the same sentence, he says, with many adversaries. With great ministry opportunities comes many trials. Where the work of the Lord is happening, the devil will be sure to dispatch some opposition. I've heard this said in ministry. You're either in one or two places. You're in the war or you're in the cemetery, right? If you're in ministry, it's true. You're either furthering God's kingdoms, you're fighting the spiritual battles, or you're doing nothing. <laughs> Satan's not interested in you. You're just a speed bump that he just kind of walks over. Paul and the man of God will not seek popularity. Being in ministry is not a popularity contest. That person will either be disappointed or have social pressure, peer pressure, to compromise. And we're not in ministry to be popular. We're in ministry to be serious and, ser and having fun. Every time I go in the morning and I see my ushers and Pastor Anthony sees the children's ministry servants, my ushers, are, they laugh so, so loud you could hear them if you're outside in the hallway. It's, uh, ministry is a joy, but it's also serious business, right? We do it to be obedient to God and for no other reason. Verse 10. Now if Timothy comes, see that he that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. Timothy. He says, let him come to you that he may be without fear. Timothy was young, and he, he was in ministry with Paul, but in a lot of ways he was still green, right? He was saying, I'm sending Timothy, take good care of him. He has my approval. I, I give my character reference to this guy. Now, two probable reasons for why the Apostle Paul tried to send this letter and pave the way for Timothy was one. Paul and the Corinthian church had a difficult, uh, sometimes strained relationship with certain factions in that church. And maybe what he was saying was, listen, don't take out the way you feel about me on poor Timothy here. Don't shoot the messenger, right? And two, Timothy was young. And coupled with the Corinthian haughtiness, it's quite possible that they looked at him as, well, what does this young whippersnapper have to say, as we would say in our vernacular? And we see this when Paul writes to Timothy in the letter to Timothy, he says, don't let anyone despise your youth. Timothy's a good minister. He's used by the Lord. Don't break his spirit. And Paul was also protective over Timothy, right? He wanted to give his uh, area of, of protection over Timothy. And that's a good quality of a pastor, to be protective of those under him. It's an important quality. And then we see he speaks about Apollos. If you remember, if you've been with us, the division that was caused. Some of the Corinthians said, hey, we like Apollos. He's really charismatic, and, and we really like him. Hey, some said, we actually like Paul. Others said, well, we like Peter. And others said, oh, we like Christ. And Paul said, why the division? We're all brothers in Christ. We're all doing the same thing. So there was a, maybe a competition in the Corinthian church with uh, Paul and Apollos. 
they try to make it a competition. However, I don't believe, definitely wasn't on Paul's part, and I don't believe it was on Apollos' part either. As a matter of fact, you see Paul encourages Apollos to go visit the Corinthians, right? And that's what we do. See, the true man of God will dispel the, the silly popularity contest. My pastor is better than your pastor, and I only listen to this guy, and why you listen, you know, with the one caveat, if there's false teachings, you shouldn't follow that person. Okay, that's a huge, strong caveat. But all in all, we're all doing the same work. In the last year, I've probably got to know many pastors in the South Brunswick area, and as long as they're teaching good doctrine, God bless them. There's a, one church that's like three miles from us. I, I'm not panicking and thinking about how I could sabotage the place. You know, We're brothers in Christ. Hey, South Brunswick, right now, the, um, the township is actually very open to churches, and that's a blessing. That's a blessing. So, no division. Um, as long as they're preaching the truth, hey, we're not going to make this a competition. Verse 13. These two verses are very powerful. I want to really pull them apart a little bit. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Now, if you've been here for any time, I love to look at the etymology of the words. Not entomology. That's the study of bugs. I like that too. But the etymology, where do words come from? I go back to the Greek, I, I look at the, the dictionary, the roots, where they come from, and I try to pull that richer meaning out so it, it's understood. Because you can blow through these two verses. It took me like two seconds to read. But let's take this apart. He says, watch, stand fast, be brave, be strong. Now, understand this. Jesus would walk along the roads. Paul would walk along the roads. And what would they do? They had to reach the high-minded, but they also had to reach those with the base as education or no education. So what they did was, what did they see as they were walking through the roads? Farms, farms, farms. You see a lot of analogies, the parables. You take an example from the physical world and make a spiritual application. What else did they see? Troops. If you were on the Roman roads, you would often see the Roman soldiers. They would take those roads, and they had the, the helmets and the, and the shields and the swords and the sandals and... Uh, you know, the, the belts. So you would see farms and soldiers, farms and soldiers, and you saw a lot of these applications had to do with farms and soldiers, which everybody could uh, understand. So let's take this apart. Number one, watch. Literally, it means keep awake. In a war, the guy in the observation tower or the guy at the elevation point has the, he's tasked with not to fall asleep at his post because if he sees an approaching army, he needs to give his army warning so they can get together and, and put up a defensive front so that they don't get taken over by that army. So keep awake, watch. There's an approaching enemy. In a spiritual uh, setting, we also have to watch. Right? The Bible says, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeing to who he may devour and that's his job, to devour us, to make us ineffective for the kingdom. So watch, folks. Keep awake. Keep vigilant. Look out for the wiles of the devil. Be in prayer. Be in the word. Be in fellowship, right? And that's important. Look out for the traps and the temptations that the evil one sets for us. Two, stand fast. Literally, it means to be stationary. Don't move from your position. Don't give ground. They found certain footwear from the Roman soldiers, and in any war, if you give ground or if you take ground, you don't want to give that back up. 
So what the Roman soldiers would do, they had a form of cleats in those days, and they would blade themselves, and they'd get their, their shields up, and they'd have their swords, and they'd line up in a phalanx formation, which they got from the Greeks, and they would keep pressing, pressing, pressing. And the Roman Empire, through every inch, expanded immensely under the Roman occupation, right? As a matter of fact, in the war, an indication of which way the direction is going will tell you who's going to win the war. In 1943, there was a big change uh, in, in World War II. The Germans were losing on the Eastern Front and the Western Front. Their boundaries were shrinking. It took two more years to end the war, but we know that Germany effectively was going to lose because we could see the, the boundaries starting to uh, decrease. But basically, in spiritual things, don't give ground. And, and we're like those Roman soldiers in a sense where we don't give ground. We don't let the enemy push us back. If you've already had a victory in Christ over this and that, don't give it back up, man. You are victorious in Christ. Hold on to that. Be stationary. Don't let anyone push you backwards. Don't compromise in Christians. Brothers and sisters, don't give up. Don't give up. Now's not the time to give up. Okay, three, be brave. It's kind of funny because the actual word uh, in the Greek means to act manly. Now, this isn't for the ladies, but you understand what I'm saying. To be courageous, be brave. Now, it doesn't mean that we're, going, we're not going to be unnerved at times. Things are going to happen in our lives that unnerve us. And for a moment, we, we don't know what to do and we're trying to collect our thoughts. Tragedies happen. We live in a fallen world. However, don't run away. Don't panic and run away when things get rough. Be challenged to be forged and to be matured. We're going to face difficult things in this life, but we have, we're not going to be destroyed by evil. We have the Holy Spirit. We have God's promises. We have his word. Where two or more are gathered in my name, Jesus says, I will be in the midst of them. You can't have a better team than that. We are on the winning team, folks. And sometimes we don't get that, right? Be strong. The last one here. It means to literally increase in vigor. Be strong. Today, the enemy is killed with buttons. Tanks have buttons now. They said that the new soldiers who come to fight in our military, they're so used to video games that a lot of the jets and the tanks are all electronic. So they get, they're used to the joysticks and the buttons, and they do very well in our military. But a lot of times when we kill an enemy, it's remote. You don't see. You could drop a smart bomb or a drone could do it, an unmanned uh, flying apparatus. And we don't see firsthand what's happening to the enemy. Oh, it was different back then. Those were the days when men were men. I mean, to, to actually stand in battle and, and to, to pick up the, the shield, and they were heavy. You had to be in some kind of shape. And, and you, the sword, and you would be fighting and thrusting and fighting and thrusting and blocking. And, you know, you and your guys were sweating, and, and a, a guy would go down, and you'd hear the screams and the cries of the men on the battlefield losing limbs and blood spurting out all over the place and the birds coming down and picking at them. I know, that was a little graphic. <laughs> Sorry, I got carried away. <laughs> That's not in my notes either. <laughs> so the guys liked it. But heck, you really had to be strong back then. And, and if you dropped your shield or your sword, you were dead. Or you would be brought up on charges as a coward and probably killed, a deserter. So it was serious business back then fighting a war. And I'm going to say, folks, that today as Christians, that we have the fortitude that we put our mind and spirit to serving the Lord. Use that sword of the spirit. The Apostle Paul speaks about it. I believe it's in Ephesians 6. 
The sword of the spirit. Never drop that spiritual sword. That is our offensive weapon. That's when we move forward and we take ground from the enemy because we have the power of God and we don't give that ground back up. Use that sword of the spirit. Don't drop that sword. That's your only offensive weapon. And five, all that you do, do in love. That's the goal. What do we do what we do? It's motivated out of love, right? That we further the kingdom of heaven. We're designed to worship God as believers, okay? We're, part of what we do is to grow and mature believers. We don't leave them into the infantile stage. It's tragic to see believers 10, 20, 30 years, and they're still acting like babies. You got to get out of that stage. Forget about the diapers, you know? You got to grow up to grow and mature believers and to save sinners. And that's all motivated out of love. That is the goal. Why do we do what we do? We need to ask ourselves that. Is it motivated out of love? Verse 15. He says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. Stephanus' household, he was the first fruits of Achaia, and basically Macedonia was really the area of northern Greece, and Achaia was the area of southern Greece. Uh, for the long, longest time, Greece was city-states, and then they unified many years ago, and and you have this, um, you know, how they speak of the northern territories versus the southern territories. But Achaeus's household, I'm sorry, Stephanus's household, all right, were the early converts of that harvest in that area. And they were the first fruits for salvation and to bear fruit. And they devoted themselves to ministry, ministry of the saints. Oh, what a joy that is to see truly. Someone gets saved, they grow in the Lord, and this is natural. They grow in the Lord, and they start to serve the Lord, and they have a joy of the Lord, and they, they want to be more involved. They can't wait to get to their next Bible study. That is an exciting thing to see because many fall away, and that's disheartening. They come fast out of the gate. You know, the gate opens up. They're out only to sprint and to peter out in a few months or a year later. D.L. Moody was incredible. I don't know if you know this, but G. Campbell Morgan, F.B. Meyer, and some others were found by D.L. Moody. They got saved, they got matured, and they moved on to make great contributions to the body of Christ. It's an interesting study to see some of the great preachers and evangelists and pastors and theologians and how they come to Christ and who was instrumental in leading them to Christ. It's pretty neat stuff. And Stephanus' household was a great example of salvation, submission, maturing, and devotion to the work of the Lord. Thank God for Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus and Timothy because they refreshed Paul's spirit and he needed it. While others sat on the sidelines watching Paul and erroneously assuming that Paul could do it all. No. Every leadership needs a team to help them and to encourage them. I got to tell you, <laughs> I enjoy when you say, hey, pray for this one, pray for that one, that's cool, you know, pray for that one, mental note, write it down, and I love to do that. However, sometimes you forget to tell me about the marriages that have done better, or the, hey, how's so-and-so? Oh, yeah, he, he came off life, life support a month ago. Like, hey, how about telling me that? <laughs> I don't mind hearing the bad news, but I also want to hear the praise reports. I love praise reports, because prayer works, right? And that's, that's refreshing to me. I'll give you another example. 
And even in help, last week we had a situation, the ushers and I were talking about something that, that needs to be done this week and how, we, how do we tackle it. And I, I gave them my cell phone number. I said, guys, call me. If I have to leave work early the night before, I'll come in early and help you guys. And God bless Jesse back there. He goes, we're not going to call you. He goes, we got it under control. It's not one more thing that you need to do as a pastor. Ah, that was great to hear. I'm always willing to help. I'm like the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, but uh, God bless these guys. And then you got, if you, I know I'm going to embarrass him, look all the way in the back in the corner, Daryl with the headphones on. <laughs> he's shrinking. He's got this big box that looks like he's on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> all these knobs and slides, I wouldn't know what to do, but he makes the sound work, and he works with the, with the worship team. God bless him. He's here every Sunday, even when he's sick, working that thing, you know? And it's just a blessing. This is refreshing to me. I come in and I smile. I'm like, this is great. Right? It's exciting. Two more verses. Oh, I'm sorry, there's a few more. Verse 19. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. There was no church buildings. Understand this because we live in America in the 21st century. There were no church buildings at all until roughly the 4th century. Constantine, Constantine changed that. So oftentimes believers met in sewers, in, in the tombs, right, if they needed shelter from the elements, and believers' homes. And Aquila and Priscilla here were faithful in that they opened up their homes. How is, let's see, 2,000 years later, how is success in ministry measured? Oh yeah, it's... Um, measured in millions of dollars in savings, uh, huge, grandiose church buildings, uh, attendees in the thousands, and if you're really a, an established pastor, the 10,000s, wow, you're really making your mark in the world. Multiple specified ministries, hey, we're the only church in the area that has the basket weaving ministry. You know, all the basket weavers could get together and get into their own group. That's how we measure ministry today, isn't it? You have a website, you have a camera, you know, you have a, you know, your name is plastered all over you know, my ministry. Well, let's go back to the first century. Success in ministry was measured in, number one, faithfulness. To find a faithful brother or sister while being persecuted was a good thing to find. It was measured in maturity, right? To be able to take corrections, to go through the hard times and not throw a tantrum or, you know, whatever you have to do, it's measured in maturity. Three, enduring in the Christian walk. Not coming out fast out of the gate and fizzling out in six months to endure in ministry. Something to be said about that. And also, serving the Lord. Let me just say this, something I came up with, and I want to repeat it twice because I really liked it. Uh, the church is not characterized by where believers meet, but the character of the believer. Let me say that again. The church is not characterized by where or how the believers meet, but by the character of the believer. That's what the Bible teaches. Oh, but we're in the 21st century. We have technology. We have multimedia experiences. We use that stuff too. But that's not. That's just ancillary. That's secondary to what the important things are in the faith and growing believers. Right? He says, the churches in Asia greet you. Back then, that was Asia Minor, which is also modern-day Turkey. Churches were united, although great distances separated them. Right? That's important. And verse 20, greet the brethren or greet another with a holy kiss. Now, if you look at even Mediterranean and Middle Eastern country today, uh, we don't really do this as much, but it's a cultural thing. They kind of, the men would do the kiss kiss on one cheek and the kiss kiss, not to be confused with the Sicilian kiss of death, my people are Sicilian, 
you know, you don't want to make that mistake. Uh, women to women and men to men. Today we do the Christian hug or the Christian handshake or the pat on the back. Minor cultural differences, but the same point. And I love the Christian hug. You know, I think I'm secure in my manhood, but I love to hug another Christian brother. And it's just an awesome feeling. And the bigger the brother, the better the hug. <laughs> and let me point this out to you also. If you have an issue with someone in the church, in your own fellowship, and you just don't like that person, you know, when, you, when you're kind of giving them a big hug, it really is kind of hard to hold on to that resentment. A lot of reasons for this. Greet each other with a holy kiss. And the point was that Christian unity, that love and unity, right? We are emotional beings. We are gregarious beings. That's the way God designed us. It's a good thing. Last few verses. 21. The salutation with my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Many of the people of those days, or the Bible writers, they would have a, I don't know, you could call it a secretary, or someone that um, would take the, the thoughts of the person, uh, kind of like dictation, and they would speak to them, and they would write down, and then they would check out the letters, and the letter would be sent off. But Paul is making sure that they know that this part of the letter I wrote with my own hand. It gives it a personal ch uh, touch there. Because what he's going to say next can be eye-popping. Are we sure that this came from Paul? Well, it definitely is classic Paul, as we know. But he says two things. Number one, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Now, we know that it isn't by Paul saying that that it's going to happen. We know through theology and scripture that that bears itself out. Do we love the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you trusted him as our Lord and Savior? All right. Uh, judgment will bear it out if, if, if uh, we've rejected him in God's way of salvation. But it's also a stern warning for deceivers and pretenders that may have been in the church. All right? It's a very stern warning. And two, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus, speaking to the same body. And it basically, he says two things that are from the east or to the west. Be accursed if you don't love Jesus, or grace be with you. Grace is something that you get that you don't deserve, that unmerited favor. And I guess I'm going to end on this note, in a, like in an evangelistic note. What camp are you in? I don't know. I can't read minds, so I don't know. I don't know where your heart is. But, you know, we're all going to be put into two categories. And the media and politicians like to pigeonhole us and to marginalize us and put us in categories. But the truth, the Bible says that we're in one of two categories. We either love the Lord Jesus and we've trusted him as our Lord and Savior, or we don't and we're accursed. We either love the Lord Jesus and uh, we're devoted to him and we want to serve him, or we don't. And that's the question that I have to ask you today. And the good news is, the Bible says that that choice is left up to you. Each one of us individually, God gives us the, the power of our destiny. He gives us the power over eternal life. We can either choose Christ and walk in that, or we can choose to reject him. Those are the two categories, folks, that we get put in in this world. So I just want to leave that with you, to take that with you, and just ask yourself, do I love the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he my Lord and Savior, or is he not? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, again, we thank you for your word. What a blessing it is to us. We love Paul.